part of leading means being well informed. And when it, for most white people, when it comes to leading, there is a great deal of informedness that needs to happen. So I'll give you a prime example. There's been times where people would like reach out to me and are like, hey, I want you to teach on this subject matter, right? And I think that that also happens when it comes to, to white people within these conversations where they're not specialists in this field, but they feel, hey, some, I have a platform, I have a space, so I'll go ahead and speak on this. Where what I think often what leading looks like is having the humility to, to acknowledge, hey, I'm not a specialist in this. Let me refer you to people who are. Welcome to Shake the Dust, Leaving Colonized Faith for the Kingdom of God, a podcast of KTF Press. My name is Jonathan Walton. I'm here with Sai Hooksha and Susie Lahoud. Today is the second half of our interview with Kyle J. Howard. If you missed the first half, it was last week's episode. I suggest you go back and listen to it now. But Kyle is a theologian, preacher, and trauma-informed soul care provider specializing in working with people who have experienced spiritual and racial abuse. Today, we talked to him about how speaking publicly about his disability both helps people and comes at a price, how to maintain energy and hope in justice work with healthy priorities and boundaries, the helpful roles that allies can play, how white people can avoid centering themselves, his understanding of his role in the church as an outsider prophet, and a whole lot more. Also, a quick note, you're going to hear me ask a question and then say a couple of smaller things, and then I'm going to vanish for the rest of the episode because I had some connection issues during this interview. So just FYI. As a reminder, if you like this show, the best way you can support us is by going to ktfpress.com and subscribing. That gets you our weekly newsletter curating resources to help you in discipleship and political education as you seek to leave colonized faith for the kingdom of God bonus episodes of this show, and writing for the three of us. It also supports this show and other projects we're working on, like future books. And you can now get a free month of that subscription by going to ktfpress.com slash free month. Again, that's ktfpress.com slash free month. Also, remember to hit the subscribe or follow button on your podcast player. Follow us at ktfpress on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and tell your friends about us. If you have any questions about anything you've heard on the show, please feel free to write to us at shakethedust at ktfpress.com. We'd love to hear from you. And we might answer your question on a future episode. Now that that's out of the way, let's get to it. Here's Kyle Howard, part two. All right, so this here's here's the question that's maybe most personal and the one I was most nervous about, so feel free to <laughs> answer this however you like. Um so we, we had, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Lamar Hardwick. We had him on uh, a couple months ago and he's, he's an autistic pastor and he talks about, uh, he talked to us about the ways in which black disabled people's behavior is frequently misinterpreted uh, because it's often seen through racist lenses. So he specifically spoke about people who are autistic uh, getting diagnosed later in life oftentimes because the behaviors that are just symptoms of autism are interpreted as just, you know, black or brown men misbehaving. And so the diagnosis end up coming later. Um, you have been quite public about the fact that you uh, have bipolar disorder and chronic pain. You are quite transparent on Twitter and you're, you're online a lot, like your life is very public. And we wanted to know 
if you have seen this, if you have seen the ways that, that your disabilities manifest in your life, misinterpreted by people who follow your work. I, I have not seen it necessarily misinterpreted by people who follow my work. I have seen it weaponized against those who despise my work. Mm-hmm. So to flesh that out a little bit more, and, and maybe if, this is if I'm grasping your question properly, but what I would say is that, so I have been, um, I, 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 I regret versus not regret maybe 50-50 when it comes to the, you know, expressing those things publicly. Um, mm. <laughs> and uh, ultimately I don't regret it because at the end of the day, by me expressing those things publicly, I've, I've, I've had numerous conversations with people who reached out to me through social media who um, were having suicidal ideations, who are deeply mm. struggling with a desire to live, who would not, who didn't, who, who saw me as someone who was safe to communicate with when they didn't see anyone else because I was willing to, to publicly share those things. And so if, if, if one life could be saved by me ex, ex, uh, being public about my own personal struggles, then it's been well worth it. And at this point, it's been more than just one life. So I'm, I'm, I'm eternally grateful uh, for the platform I have and, and for that trans- the transparency that I've shared because it has saved lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it has, it has come at a cost because mm-hmm. um Again, not people that are supportive of my work who will follow my. So it depends on how you mean by follow my work. Because I, I literally, and I learned this recently. I have entire Facebook groups devoted to hating me. You know, I have, I have hate fan clubs, and, and, and yeah. so when I, w- I used to think that hate mail just came from like individuals, I now know that there's actually hate fan clubs <laughs> of people who come together just to hate me and talk about how much they hate me. So, in one sense, you could say they follow my work, but in another sense, I would say they they don't really follow my work. They they stalk my work. <laughs> uh, but what I would say is that um, those people will see me share these kinds of things and they will interpret it as being weak, as being weak, as being me being uh, as a weakness or me being overly vulnerable. And so they'll take that and they'll one with it and they'll say all kinds of things. Um, I, when I got pulled over by the police recently, I remember tweeting, I tweeted out a thread about what was happening. And I had numerous DMs that came in of people, and I was sharing with people that I was having basically like fighting off having a panic attack due to uh, my own PTS uh, from mm-hmm. police brutality in the past. And mm-hmm. I, I received DMs of people mocking me and and and, say, and saying all kinds of horrible things, you know, mm-hmm. about that. And so there was a dynamic of me sharing that allowed some to pray, some to have greater understandings, and then it allowed other people to weaponize that as a way of discrediting. I remember I shared when the George Floyd uh, uh, verdict was announced, I I shared a screenshot of my raw emotions in that moment. And uh, many people who follow my work was like, you know, thank you for this rawness, for this transparency and everything else. But then there was other people who took a screenshot of that moment of raw emotion and they began plastering it in, in articles and blog posts and everything else saying oh look at this this dude is fake he's just faking tears and you know so everything else and so i think so white supremacists and racists will always weaponize black um challenges struggles vulnerabilities as a way of weaponize them against the black community and against those black people themselves uh but i do also think that there is um a place for that kind of vulnerability actually giving people a window into unique challenges and struggles that actually um build camaraderie, support, um, transparency, openness, um, healing, um, and all those other kinds of things as well. 
<laughs> and and so it, it's hard for me in the inside to kind of pass the benefit versus the negative. You know, I just mm-hmm. I just kind of take it daily when I have convers when I have certain behind the scenes conversations with people who are struggling. To me, it's like okay, this is worth it. I'm thankful for this that I'm able to have these conversations. Uh, but then there's the other side of me where it's kind of like you fight against the reality of it's like a public perception, I guess, yeah. where the public right. perception being like, let me think about how to say this. I'm thankful for the amount of followers I have on Twitter. Um, and I have no idea how it got up so high, <laughs> uh, but I don't, I don't write or I don't tweet for them. Um, my Twitter is for survivors. Uh, my Twitter is for people who are barely holding on to life. Those are the people that I'm tweeting to and wanting to let them know that, Hey, I understand I'm there for you. I support you. I know what it's, I know what you're going through. And so um, th- that's my base. And if I, and out of, if out of the almost 40,000 followers, I have a hundred survivors who are like, who fit that mold, then I'm only talking to a hundred people. That's who it's for. You know, mm-hmm. even when I talk about racial trauma, um, I'm talking to white people who want to grow in their knowledge and understanding and abounding in love. And I'm talking to black people who have experienced racial trauma. If out of the 40,000 people who follow me, only a hundred or that fit into that mold, then I'm fine just talking to that hundred. Does that make sense? And, and, and so for me, um, what I would say is that the audience in which I, I am speaking to, I don't think that they take advantage of that. I don't think that I don't I don't see the negative there because I think that they're being helped. But within the broader audience, I think that there's all there's absolutely a dynamic of people weaponizing um, mm. uh, uh, disabilities or uh, struggles or vulnerabilities or even black trauma um, against black people as a way to discredit them. That absolutely happens, and it's something that I that happens on a regular daily basis that I just kind of have to press press past. Hmm. Yeah. So responding and maybe kind of expanding on that a little bit, you spend a lot of your days talking about and dealing with difficult and deeply painful subjects. And you have received a significant amount of racist backlash, like you just shared, these hate groups and all of that for the work that you do, both personally and publicly. So how do you cope with that? How do you stay hopeful? How do you continue in the face of all of that? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, so, a couple of things. Uh, one is that, so my, my Twitter is, and my social media is largely um, my reflections in real time. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is that, so if I'm tweeting about something about, say, about racism, white supremacy, uh, spiritual abuse, or this, that, and the other, um, one way to look at it is that, hey, Kyle's just sitting here you know, just tweeting random thoughts that he has to basically trigger folk or make people angry, this, that, and the other, uh, which I think some people have that kind of perception. If I'm tweeting about something like that, it's because I've just finished getting off the phone, talking with somebody who through tears was sharing their experience and I'm sharing a reflection about something that has happened in real time. Hmm. And so in some hmm. sense, everything that I share is a true story. It's, 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 it's the reflections of something that I have just dealt with or am dealing with. Um, and so, yeah, I, I do, I, I tweet pretty regularly throughout the day because I'm also counseling regularly throughout the day and I'm sharing mm-hmm. those real time reflections and those, and so every thread, so I can, at least I did a thread on union with Christ and, and spiritual trauma. That mm-hmm. thread was the result of me just finishing soul care of helping someone who was struggling in profound ways come to find freedom and joy in union with Christ. And so Mm -hmm. I'm taking that and then I'm saying, Hey, 
this person was helped, you know, with the one-on-one. Let me share this again with my survival audience in hopes that this mm-hmm. will encourage them. Because again, that's who I'm speaking to largely, helping them to deconstruct and rebuild. When I'm when I'm not counseling and when I'm not tweeting out reflections based upon my counseling. So that's like that's like work time. Twitter's work for me. Yeah. When I'm yeah. not doing that, I rarely think about race issues. I rarely think about trauma and abuse issues. I'm playing with my kids. I may be playing some video games. I may be hanging mm-hmm. out with my wife. I may, yeah. be, I, I may be doing something related to theology and teaching and Bible preaching or this, that, and the other. And so a lot of people think that Twitter is my life. And, and even though I, I've said even on that, that this is specifically for, uh, my Twitter is primarily targeted talking about spiritual trauma and, and racial trauma. Even though that's just a, a, a fraction of my comprehensive work, that's what I've devoted Twitter to being about. It's it's really just a social media that be mad toxic. My life is very not toxic. <laughs> you know, I'm very selective with friends. I'm very selective with relationships. I'm very, you know, I'm very selective with those things. And so uh, everything is kind of stays on social media. And, mm-hmm. and with that being now, with that being said. Um, I ain't gonna lie. So a lot of that stuff hurts. Yeah, I am still human. I I I try to avoid the comment sections as much as possible, but mm-hmm. I but I still occasionally some still gets through, and it's kind of like you know wow. And when you take those things, and you also take in the tra- the dynamics of trauma, because again, I got into the work that I'm doing as a survivor of spiritual abuse, and so it, it's it's very regular that I am second guessing myself. In the sense of if someone is saying that, oh, you're divisive, you're dividing the church. Well, that was language that was used, weaponized against my family and specifically against me for years. I was told that I was being divisive just for existing. And so when I hear those kinds of language, that kind of language, it's, it is triggering. I do have to think, am I being divisive? Am I an enemy of the church? Does, am, I, am I in Jesus? So though I still struggle with those kinds of thoughts and those kinds of things. You know, I, I just have a, a people behind me. Like my wife, um, I have some close friends um, in, in ministry who who are constantly supportive and encouraging to me and keeping my mind uh, rooted in, in in truths about who I am in Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, what I what I would say is that um, I think the main thing that I do is that I and one says I don't I take the work seriously, but I don't take myself too seriously. And that uh, again, when I'm doing the work, when I'm sharing, you know, that's that's great. When I'm out, of, when I'm out of that, and then people are like criticizing and everything else, my primary question is: Has I have I been faithful? Have I told the told the truth? And did I do it in a way that wasn't mean spirited or maybe direct, maybe blunt? But what was I was I lacking love? Was I was I being abrasive in the way that I shared that? And if I can say that no, I wasn't. Then um, I don't. Then I'm good. Anything else anybody else says to me is nothing compared to what I deserve, uh, given my past. And so I, I just rest in the righteousness of Christ. Um, and then finally, a uh, last thought on that it would be that um, I think one one of the ways that it most tangibly impacts me is like I'm writing a book right now on spiritual trauma, um, hmm. but it's really hard to write a book about spiritual trauma when you're doing spiritual trauma care at the same time. There's a reason why people right. don't write books until they retire. I'm learning that and <laughs> as I go, because by the time yeah. I'm done with my day and it's like sit down in time to write the book, I'm like, man, um, I don't want to, let me go play Spider-Man or something. I do not want <laughs> right. to write, a, write on trauma right now. Yeah. And so right. I, I do struggle with kind of ba- with balancing out those kinds of things and, and self-care and everything else. I, 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 that is a challenge. Um, and so I, I definitely haven't mastered that dynamic, but I think the main thing for me is, 
um, is compartmentalizing, where I have the work that I do with my boots on. Uh, Twitter is largely not playtime for me. It's largely work. It's me doing what I do privately um, with a public audience. But I have a very targeted audience. My targeted audience are survivors, trying to give them language for what they've experienced or what they're trying to navigate through. Because my target audience, I guess, is so narrow, um, there's, I kind of have tunnel vision. And, mm-hmm. and, I, and I think that tunnel vision serves me in being able to uh, keep the main thing, the main thing, which is for me, which is um, being a resource uh, for survivors. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I hope that's helpful. I feel like that was maybe one of the questions I danced around the most. Uh, but <laughs> uh, it's, there's so many layers to that. Yeah, no, it was real. And and seriously, just so much respect for the the intentionality and the integrity of the work that you're doing. Ab- absolutely. I mean, I'm I'm taking notes on like multiple levels, like myself as a husband, myself as a leader, myself as like a teammate. Yeah. <laughs> it's like yeah. there's there's a significant contribution that you're making via social media, but then also just I I, I imagine that's also reflected in the lives of your patients and um, and prayerfully an outflow of you know what's happening in your family. So I'm really grateful for yeah you sharing your life with us. Um, are there ways that you have helped people um, deal with the constant engagement that's necessary to decolonize around race, class, and gender? I, so, for example, um, I you know literally am having conversations with my wife about how I don't want to colonize her or more like intimately like turn her into me, right? Like I don't want her to get her think like me, act like me, do like me, so she can satisfy my needs and become what I imagine her to be. I want her to flourish as God has called and called her, and so that is at the forefront of my mind in our conversations, and that requires me reflecting on it each day. It might require a prayer that I pray, you know, on the hours, right? It's like there's 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 in- necessary engagement for that to become a regular part of my life. In our in our emotionally healthy activist curriculum, we call it like moving from unconscious incompetence to unconscious competence, where it becomes just a normal part of what we do. Um and so that's the type of engagement I'm talking about. Uh, but it can be exhausting. Yeah. So, so what I would say is a couple of things. So for one, Mm -hmm. it can absolutely be exhausting. And I think that there is uh, what I like to call, and this isn't original with me by any stretch, but Mm -hmm. what I call concentric circles of priorities. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that, you know, a concentric circle is what happens when you throw a pebble into a lake, you get like a small circle, then a bigger circle, then a bigger circle, then a bigger circle. And when we think about concentric circles as it relates to priorities, uh, you have priorities that are most centralized to you, most that need to be primary, and then you have other circles that are less pri- that need to be less prioritized than the closest circle. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so, with that being said, I think that there are too many people engaged in too many uh, concentric circles. And what I mean by that is there are people who do specialized work in these fields, someone like myself, who has to be invested to a certain degree. But for every one person like me, there are thousands of people who I think may be overly invested in these kinds of conversations uh, because and, and because they're not, a, not, not equipped nor called to basically 
uh, constantly be trying to convince people that they to love them, constantly mm. trying to convince people of that they are worthy of 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 equality and of the imago day that God has has made them with. There's just so many so so many things in which people are like engaging or fighting or maybe even on Facebook where they're having to post videos. Of one of the, about you know the the the, re, the most recent police shooting or something like that. And one of the things that I've said is that if you're ever at the moment where you feel like you have to defend or justify your humanity, you're in an abusive relationship or a toxic relationship. And so mm-hmm. if you if you if you feel like with your Facebook friends that you have to prove the validity of your humanity by posting these videos of police officers killing unarmed black people, you have toxic relationships that you need to you need to unfriend. Or same thing same thing to the applies can apply to a church. Now, when you're talking about a marriage, that's one of your that's one of your most closest concentric circles, right? Mm-hmm. And so, there's a lot of energy that I think that people that people are pouring out on social media that should be invested within their actual relationships, mm-hmm. which which can include canceling some relationships. Does that make sense? Where there's oh, some yeah, relationships yeah. that are mad toxic, y'all, so you need to cut them out, but it's so that you can devote that energy towards where it most needed. So like someone like you. So say you're in an interracial marriage mm-hmm. and it's it's been exhausting. It's exhausting for you to engage, you know, these kinds of things. Uh, one of the questions that I would have for you, if you say, so if we were doing counseling, one of the questions I would ask of you is a layout for me all the ways in which you are engaging the current issues of racial, racial strife uh, within the church and the ward. Um, mm. And we would lay all those out. And my hunch would be that the only way you're engaging is not with your wife, that there are other ways in which you're engaging, in which you're invested, in which you're involved in, that's also taking energy. And so the mm. issue is likely not that engaging these things with your wife is exhausting, but the issue may be by the time that you get to your wife to engage these things, you're exhausted. Does that, mm. make, does that make sense? Oh, I mean, yeah, absolutely. And yeah, so, yeah. Th- I think that so what I what I would say to people is that there needs to be a reprioritize. And I, I, I sorry to use you as an example in real time, hey, but <laughs> it's all right. It but, is, if it's true, it's true. The bomb is actually for me, so it's all right. Okay. <laughs> so what I, what I would tell people is that they they should be one of just a healthy exercise would be for people to write down the all the different ways in which they're invested in these kinds of conversations. Right. And then as they write them down to begin working through what should be the prior, what should prioritize my time, Uh, whether it be personal relationships with a a spouse, with family, with friends. Uh, Then eventually you get to social media, which is a very broad circle, in my opinion. But Mm -hmm. look through all those things and then invest your energy in a wise way, because we all we all have energy capital, meaning that we all have a certain Mm -hmm. amount of energy and that's all we get for a day. Yeah. And right. what you don't want to happen is that you're expending that energy in unnecessary ways so that when you get to the point of having to engage with it in a, in a necessary way, you don't have the energy to do so faithfully. And and so what what I would what I would say is that if you make prioritize the ways in which you invest in these kinds of things, and then from there, uh, I think what what a lot of people will find is that they actually have more energy than they think they have. Uh, but the problem is is the way in which that energy is being directed. And most people, as I said before, don't have to be engaged in all these concentric circles that specialists have to be engaged with. Let me put it another way. I don't think most black people, I I think that white people should be leading the way in these conversations. 
I think it's trash that survivors often have to lead conversations about abuse. I think that advocates mm. for survivors should have to be leaving the, leading those conversations. It should never be that the victims of marginalization or oppression are having to lead the way. That should be the working job of allies who are leading and leading the way. Now, I think that when it comes to leading in these kinds of conversations, I do believe that um, more or less white people need to be stepping up and taking taking the reins from this so that minorities specifically don't have to constantly be leading the way in the sense of trying to change white people. Um, mm-hmm. Again, I think that there's a space for specialists to be teaching. Uh, to so people like me, we teach. People like me, I teach white people. I help white people process through challenges, this, that, and the other. That shouldn't be the job of every single minority. You got only mm-hmm. you only got so much energy in the day. Allow people like me to to invest our energy in doing things like that. Y'all should be investing your energy in going and uh, you know where it's necessary, and then beyond that. I don't go far like in a meadow s- somewhere. Don't feel like you have to take on that kind of burden. Uh, and when you do take on that burden, you actually are leaving a, bu- a, a relieving a white people of a burden that they should be carrying and, ha- and should have been carrying for the past several hundred years. And, and so I, I do think that um, even within what I'm saying, that it, there is a dynamic where um, the majority culture really should be taking on more of these concentric circles than minorities. Let me take a step back. Uh, Romans one, Romans twelve one and two. God's will is good, mm-hmm. acceptable, and perfect. If it's, His will is good, acceptable, and perfect, that means there's no contradiction, there's no compromise that has to be done for God's will to be met. I think that uh, many white people can take on more than they're taking on as it relates to trying to heal the chasms that exist regarding racial uh, disunity. Does that make sense? Am I, am no, I making I mean, sense? It, I, sound like it, I'm, I mean, you just consolidated like eight years worth of therapy in the last like four minutes. We, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think you're right that there isn't a contradiction because a contradiction because everybody has a place at the table. We just have to find that place at the table yeah. and eat what we're supposed to eat. Right. Um, and the things that you're saying about um, energy being directed how those concentric circles work themselves out in our everyday lives is absolutely true. I think for me, because I am a specialist in leading these workshops pre-COVID, um, there's a sense of, of lostness now that I don't lead in those spaces because of, of how we've responded to the pandemic and, um, and had the nature of the work that I do leading groups from all over the world that come to New York um, and traveling um, and things like that. So it's it's yeah, I'm gonna be processing line. I yeah, just really appreciate you going in on me, and that's totally fine. I, hope, <laughs> I, I also hope that that is helpful for people. I'll be so so. Jonathan was so great in just being really vulnerable in that moment, and um, so for me, it's a question of as a racially assigned white woman, um, it, there's always this dance that I feel like I'm doing inwardly of. Do I belong in these spaces? Do I not belong in these spaces? I feel like so much of my job is just to kind of listen right now and try to learn as much as I can. And um, and yet also I have folks like, you know, Jonathan and and sign my life who are, who also encouraged me to to have a voice at times. And so you saying that just now that you feel like it actually is the job of white people to prioritize some of these, as you put them, concentric circles. Um, and to to help white people figure out how to do better in these areas. Um, how do we do that in a way that doesn't end up then centering ourselves in a way that just continues to reinforce 
our own white supremacy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what I would say to that is that, uh, so a couple of things. One, um, I think that w- part of leading, um, part of leading means being, being well-informed. And when it, for most white people, when it comes to leading, there is a great deal of informedness that needs to happen. And so some of that has to do with when it comes. So, so I'll give you a prime example. So this is something that I see often that happens even within my circles. There's been times where people would like reach out to me and are like, Hey, I want you to teach on this subject matter. Right. Um, and, um, and I have two options. It's like, I could either teach on this subject matter that I'm not a specialist in, or I can refer to someone who is a specialist in that. And right. this is a really tricky thing when it comes to the way that the whole uh, evangelical machine kind of works, because a lot of people will just accept uh, speaking engagements, maybe because they need the money, whatever it is, even though they're not a specialist in something. A lot of this mm-hmm. happens a lot with minorities. A minority is not a specialist, but they're being asked. So they'll be like, hey, OK, yeah, I'll speak on this. And uh, and I think that that also happens when it comes to to white people within these conversations where they're not specialists in this field, but they feel, hey, some, I have a platform, I have a space, so I'll go ahead and speak on this. Where what I think often what leading looks like is having the humility to, to acknowledge, hey, I'm not a specialist in this, but I let me refer you to people who are. Hmm. And so the same way when it comes to professional uh, courtesy, I think that requires people who aren't specialists in the field to be like, hey, I, I, I could speak on this, but I know somebody who may be better for you. Let me connect you with them. I think for many white people, as they seek in leading this conversation, what I mean by leading the conversation, I don't mean that means they should take charge in regards to like teaching and everything else. What that could mean is that they take the initiative to to read well, to inform themselves well, so that they can effectively refer other people to black voices who Mm. um, are worth listening to. Does that make sense? That makes so much sense. Or leading the way being not necessarily... um, uh, again, leading a ministry or leading a teaching on this, but maybe that means uh, using their uh, financial resources to support um, um, uh, black ministries or uh, tables that are being built by BIPOC uh, Christians who they who they believe are doing good work, supporting them. Mm-hmm. And so by, by leading the way, I'm not necessarily talking about in the sense of leading the way in the sense of power, as much as I'm talking about leading the way in the sense of initiative. Of taking mm-hmm. initiative, whether that initiative is uh, supporting through resources, is re- supporting through referring, you know, voices that are worth listening to, to you know, just essentially taking on the the, the helm of of of, niche, of initiative, rather than uh, black people always having or minorities always having to be the ones who are initiating, who are guiding, who are, who are basically doing all the work, raising mm-hmm. the funds, writing the books, uh, having the conversations, referring the people, you know, you know, the list just goes on and on and on and on. Yeah. Uh, where I think that white people can be more effective if they are speaking to their own people. That racist uncle, you can recommend uh, Jamal Tisby's book, The Color of Compromise. Mm-hmm. Um, the the uh, you, you get what I'm getting at, or the person who's oh, like yeah. who says, "Oh, the racism no longer exists." You can refer to them the uh, the the book by Kendi on um, the stamp from the beginning. So yeah. or so so that there are things that white people can do even within their own concentric circles that can move the conversation forward and and, and as they take initiative rather than just simply passing the baton on to black people to have to deal with all the drama. Does that make sense? Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah, so, having a bo- so having a book study where you're like, hey, let's read this book together and talk about it, rather than, hey, why don't you read this book and email Kyle <laughs> about your concerns? Mm. Does that make sense? I love y'all, but I, I'm not trying to have all those emails coming in. I'm going to ignore most of them. 
and, you know, and, and, but you guys can have conversations where they, if they press, you can deal with the hypersensitivity. You can deal with the, the rage or this, that, and the other, rather than having to let black people deal with it or other minorities Absolutely. deal with it. Yeah. Does that make sense? So when I talk about Absolutely. leading the way, I'm not speaking about power dynamics as mm-hmm. much as I'm talking about initiative, which I think mm-hmm. is, is, is a super important distinction there. And it's a great question because I think that the, the default is to think, okay, so is this talking, how do I do this without wielding my power in a way that centers myself? Mm-hmm. Well, by removing power from the equa- equation, or even more than that, by being willing to use your power to empower other voices. You see, because that's the Christian way in which that's the way that Christ used power. Christ used power to empower others who lacked power, while abusive power structures use power to empower the powerful. And, mm-hmm. and so one of the ways if you want to wield uh, power that includes social power or racialized power um, in a way that is uh, Christological or Christ centered, it looks like using your power to empower other people who lack power in that space. And so that would look like taking initiative to to refer and grant voice uh, to minority people to speak rather than you trying to appropriate spaces and you be the one who is centered in that space to speak. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's so good. Thank you. If you guys don't mind, I want to I want to hear another question from Susie, just because I want to I I've ta- I answered a lot of questions and I love to hear questions from my sisters and also want to think about sisters listening. So if you if you have another question for me, Susie, I would love to take at least one more from you. Oh man, Kyle, thank you. Um, can I just ask you? Do you feel like, I mean, so you're doing this as a theologian, as as someone who is trauma informed, but also, I mean, I just feel like you have a pr- prophetic gift. Do you, have you felt that way? Have you had people say that to you before that there's there's also just, I feel like, an anointing on the way that you speak into people's lives. Well, th- th- thank you, thank you for that. Um, so, when, uh, so what, really quick story. When I when I was converted, I had a radical conversion experience. I'm gonna get a little bit charismatic with you guys, so I hope you don't mind, and I don't we, I don't scare y'all off to to hang up on me. But uh, <laughs> I describe myself so, as a closet charismatic. So yeah. Okay, good. So maybe, maybe this will bring you out of the closet. Maybe this will bring you out of the closet. So when I got converted, it was a radical conversion experience. I had no biblical background whatsoever. Never read the Bible, never been to church. I, I went to church, like maybe, I think once before. Uh, but I, I was a, a, an atheist who, who believed in God enough to know that I hated him. So I, I had no kind of, I was a secularist, essentially. And when I was converted, it was a radical conversion experience where I essentially dared God to to show himself to me and God obliged and and showed himself to me <laughs> and uh, or revealed himself to me. I, I didn't have a visual a, a physical vision of God or Christ. But in 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 that I received I was converted and in my conversion experience, I also received what I believe is a calling to pastor and and uh Use a prophetic gift. Now, at the time, I didn't know what uh, prophecy was. I didn't know what a pastor was or anything of that nature. Uh, but it was very clear to me that whatever I, however I served the church, uh, that the Lord wanted me to serve it within a prophetic and pastoral capacity. Yeah. And um, and so when I when I hear that, so I have heard people say that when I do hear that it's it is there's kind of an af- a confirmation aspect to that because mm-hmm. um, that 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 call came tw- uh, what I've been a believer for almost twenty years now. 
And so when I people mm. when I hear people say, even refer to me as a pastor, because I'm not a pastor, uh, and I don't know if I ever will be, just based upon all that I've gone through in the church, you know, context. But when I hear people say that, hey, you shepherd us from afar, something like that, there's a confirmation dynamic to that. Where it's like, wow, you know, that that is the Lord's uh, call being, you know, on my life being answered. And when I hear people say you have yeah. a prophetic gift, uh, you know, I feel similarly, you know, in that kind of way, where it's like there's a confirmation dynamic to that. Uh, based upon how I felt the Lord called me and you know, at my conversion, uh, and so so yeah, so that that's that's encouraging to hear. At the same time, it comes with some trepidation because uh, the uh, Isaiah was sawed in half with a wooden saw, and Jeremiah was stoned to death. And um, there, there seems to be a tendency of God's people uh, slaughtering his his prophets, mm-hmm. you know. And so <laughs> there's, there's a dynamic where it's kind of like not only that, but the work of, of being having a prophetic voice, at least in Scripture, seems to mean that you're going to be profoundly lonely um, through, mm-hmm. throughout, throughout your life. And, and so yeah. uh, what I would say is that there's kind of a there's kind of a confirmation uh, because I, I feel like my wife and I both have uh our lives are as such where they feel like they kind of fall within the vein of being prophetic. If that makes sense. Hmm. Does that make sense? So so what I'm I'm saying is that I have experienced that, that level of the uh, uh, prophetic isolation, being attacked, being lonely in the sense of ministry relationships and all those kinds of things, especially when you talk about things like spiritual abuse. Hmm. Um, Yeah. So, so, so yeah, there's, there's kind of a double edged sword there where it's kind of like, yes, confirmation, praise God. I feel like that's, I'm working within my calling if that's the vibe that I'm giving people. But then at the same time, it's kind of like, yeah, but that call also comes with some, some uh, cost. And uh, if I am serving effectively, then that cost is going to be more further realized. And up to this point, that cost has kind of sucked. So (laughs) (laughs) yeah, so I kind of have a kind of a love hate relationship. Uh, with uh, that calling, uh, but but I do believe it's something that God has called me to be. Yeah, that's real. Mm. No, and that's just so evident, and it, it strikes me too. Again, I have a lot of questions, but for the sake of time, I won't go into all of them. But just um, so much of what you shared, it, it strikes me, and the same with your your Twitter feed and and spaces that you share these things. I haven't heard these things before. Some of these things. Um, a lot of these things actually. And, and I'm wondering why is that? And, and I wonder if part of it is just having the courage to say them, um, one, having the insight to recognize these dynamics, but two, having the courage to actually speak what you see. Yeah. Again, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I, I do think that it plays a role because one of the things that I've really struggled with, especially recently was with my, my final degree at Southern Seminary. Um, that was that, oh mm. my God, that, that, that was hard <laughs> in 2016. Mm. So I, I, I finished my associates in like a year and a half and it was magna cum laude. It was, you know, everything breezed by. Then I did my bachelor's mm. magna cum laude, everything breezed by, I did it in a couple of years. And then I started mm. my master's. And when I started my master's, I was going through, uh, pretty easily. And then 2015, 2016 hit. And, um, it was about two mm. years. I didn't even come on campus. It was so hostile. Uh, because I, I spoke about, you know, um, Eric Garner uh, being murdered, choked to death by police officers. And mm-hmm. I remember, again, I've shared this story before. Where I had several seminary friends reach out to me, say, hey, I thought you were one of us. Why are you talking about these things? Yes. And, and the atmosphere mm-hmm. just became so toxic that for two years, I didn't even go on campus. I lived right across the street, but I took online courses. And then it was a couple more years after being, you know, forced out of our church due to spiritual abuse that I just, I couldn't even open a textbook without it being triggering. Mm-hmm. 
And so mm-hmm. finally in 2020, um, we just, with only a couple classes left, we, I decided that I'd finish my master's, but there was a lot of regret regarding uh, doing, sem- doing my seminary at Southern. And um, not only because of the direction of the institution and of its president, you know, in regards to endorsing Trump and everything else, but it was just like, man, I've wasted so many years. And it was my wife who was super encouraging in that time, just telling me like, no, you didn't waste your time. You've, you've been in this space in such a way, but you're an outsider now. And so you're able to assess things as a black Christian theologian who has a master in white theology you're able to pinpoint and assess things that those who are in it are like fish in water. And Mm so it it may seem like it was a loss uh, or or a waste of time or loss of time, but there is a very real reality where I would not be able to do what I do now in regards to serving uh, saints who've experienced spiritual abuse or racial trauma if it wasn't for not only my experiences in that space, but in being so invested in historical theology, which is the, the development of theological systems and ideas, if it wasn't for that space, I wouldn't have such a uh, be able to s- assess those things the way that I'm able to assess. And so th- coming to that realization was super comforting for me because it, it, in some sense it redeemed those years and redeemed that time in the sense of being able to say, well, I wouldn't be what I'm doing now and I wouldn't be able to help people in the ways that I'm helping them now if I didn't invest those years in mastering these theological systems mm-hmm. and being able to, to be as an mm-hmm. outsider look in and say, this is what's happening here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is this has been like a, a rich conversation, and I'm I'm wondering um, two things. One, if you could tell us again, like where where people can follow you and things like that, and then we're gonna we're gonna pull Susie out of that Baptist Pentecostal closet and just if she'd be willing to just play a blessing over you, that there would be more as you poured out mm-hmm. so much um, here tonight. Uh, if she's comfortable, I'll be more than ha- I'd uh, I would uh, in, embrace that and rejoice in that. <laughs> Uh, so so cool. you can find me. Uh, so I primarily, I'm primarily on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter handle is at Kyle James Howard. Um, my, I also have a website that's being revamped right now at KyleJHoward.com. And uh, within the next couple of weeks, I'll be launching two podcasts. Uh, the first one is called Quorum Deo. Um, it's actually been around for a while, but I'm relaunching it. And that just deals with like practical theology stuff. And then my other podcast is going to be called Soul Care. And that pod- podcast is essentially going to be dealing with us. Uh, Christian counseling, soul care issues from a black cultural perspective, a black theological mm-hmm. and cultural perspective. So essentially it's going to be transcultural uh, soul care, transcultural counseling. Um, and that, that's mm-hmm. going to be what that podcast is devoted to. And so that should be launching in the next week or two. And then if I could finally, uh, my primary work right now is through uh, is providing free soul care services for minorities who have experienced spiritual or racial trauma in the church but lack the funds to be able to uh, pay for it. Um, I cover the mm. cost of their soul care through patron support. And so I have patrons who give monthly support that covers the cost so that I'm able to provide care for them for free without mm. um, making my family go hungry <laughs> in the process. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I hope that this blessing that Susie's going to pray with would just be multiplied um, as we close out tonight's conversation all right let's pray heavenly father we worship you as as the god of our whole being as the god of our our body mind and soul and as the god who sees us and the god who knows us and father we thank you for the the insights that you've gifted kyle with lord for the ways that you've given him 
this incredible ability to see into to people's souls and to walk with them through the deepest, darkest places and experiences that they've been through. And God, we just continue to pray your anointing on his ministry, that you'd continue to give him that clear vision in and sense of calling to the communities that he's serving. God, we ask that you would continue to provide him with the rest that he needs physically, emotionally, and spiritually, the refreshment that he needs. Bless his family. Bless his time with his wife and his kids. Bless his wife and her calling and anointing and with the prophetic voice that you've given her, Lord. And God, we thank you for this platform or multiple platforms that you've blessed him with, Lord. God, we pray that you would continue to speak to every single person that comes into contact with his work through Twitter and through podcasts and through his writing and on blogs and this book he's working on. God, we just pray that your spirit would continue to pervade every aspect of his ministry, Lord. And thank you for this conversation, God, and and the privilege of diving into these things. And um, God, we just pray that it would be a, a fragrant offering to you, Lord, that you would continue to use it to reach people's hearts and souls and minds and to bring about your transformation for the sake of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. amen. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Shake the Dust. Please make sure to subscribe to our blog at ktfpress.com. And don't forget, you get a free month with that subscription by going to ktfpress.com slash free month. That's ktfpress.com slash free month. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at KTF Press. Subscribe to or follow this podcast in your favorite podcast player. And write into us at shakethedust at ktfpress.com with any questions you may have about anything that you've heard. Our theme song is Citizens by John Guerra. Our podcast art is by Jacqueline Tam. And we will see you next week. tell a joke what's a joke that's what i said so i told me to tell a joke and i said i can't tell jokes oh um. <laughs> <laughs> maya knows lots of jokes it's a- yeah i need you to tell a maya level joke please what do you what do you call cows what do you call cows that protest what a movement <laughs> a i movement. love it because it's, it's a joke and it's woke it's a woke joke it's, it's a woke joke. joke. It's not. I mean, the joke itself isn't particularly well. I guess. I mean, as a white girl who just grew up with "Why did the chicken cross the road?" I feel like it's you know. Why did the chicken cross the road, Susie? To get to the other side. Thank you. <laughs> hey, what do you call a duck that sells pills? Oh, a quack. Yes. Oh, that's a good one. That's a good joke. I literally just made that up. That's a good joke. Uh, wait, you made up a joke and then I predicted the answer? Yeah, just now. I'm pretty proud of myself.